Well, Happy New Year to everyone. Really great to have you. Really, thank you. It was a beautiful thing to sing with you guys, just to hear so many of God's people, uh, particularly your visitors, just singing uh, praise to Him. Really encouraged my heart. Uh, we are in uh, Daniel chapter 7, as you worked out. It's really just a normal passage, nothing weird in it, just like we, this is the sort of passage you do every single week. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit strange, but um, because of that reason, I've been uh, struggling this week to get my head around it and what's, what God's message for us is, how do we hear Him well in it? Uh, but I'd like you to, if you could, because for that reason, join me now and ask Lord, the Lord to help us in the Spirit to change us through this message. Um, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word, and there are weird bits in it. And yet the, the strange bits also sometimes have this incredible power to them because of their, their otherworldliness, their difference to us. And Father, we pray that that might be the case today, that your spirit would capture our hearts, would give us hope despite things possibly being difficult and despite future not being what it, we might hope that it might be. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask you that you'd give us a deep abiding and living hope today through what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, has anyone here ever had a a truly horrible boss? Like a truly bad one? There's There's not that many. Most human beings are kind of okay, but if you've got a really bad boss, they can ask you to do something, even something that's quite reasonable and just suspicious, right? You don't necessarily want to sort of sign up to any project that they ask you, even if it sounds kind of good, if you don't trust them. You might be worried about a catch. Uh, Sometimes uh, you might have a a horrible government even in your life. I'm not referencing anyone in particular, but but you might see their proposal, their legislation, and you see what they're doing. You think, well, if if I believe their words, that sounds really, really good. But but, but is is the legislation going to do what they think, say that it's going to do? Bad bosses, horrible bosses are hard because even the good things you can get really scared about because you don't know whether it's truly going to be good. Now, we, are, we have been going through Daniel, and we have picked up sort of the, the early, the first half, all of the, the narrative. And here, we're about to hit a new section in a way. Now, you're unlikely to have noticed, unless you're really strange, that we are in the Aramaic section of Daniel. You see, the first chapter is written in Hebrew, the language of Israel when they were back in their land, but chapter 2 switches to Aramaic, the language of Babylon. Now, this is the first talk in a new series, but it's also the last talk of the old, because you can see there, well, if you've got really good eyes, you can see there top right, chapter 7, Daniel's dream, is still in the Aramaic section. It closes off our last few talks. And chapters 2 through 7, you can see they're sort of paired up, 2 and 7 together, 3 and 6 together, 4 and 5 together. So, for example, um, let's, go, let's go down the bottom to, and then, you, and then it switches back into Hebrew again for the end. Now, if we zoomed in a little bit here, um, for example, chapter 4, where are we? Yep, chapter 4 at the bottom left there uh, is about the arrogance of King Nebuchadnezzar. And the matching pair to that is chapter 5 about the arrogance of King Belshazzar. Now, if we go up to chapters two and th- sorry, three and six, then you've got two stories, both about God's faithful people being the victims of court plotting. And both times they find themselves on the wrong side of Babylonian laws, trying to get them to worship something that's not their God, or they'll be spectacularly executed, either by lion or by fire, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in one, and Daniel in the other. So what do we find when we zoom up 
to chapters 2 and 7. What's the pairing and what is it doing? And how does it help us understand Daniel 7? Well, they're actually, you might notice, a pair of dreams. Nebuchadnezzar's original, tell me what my dream was or I'll kill you, from chapter 2. And now a new dream that Daniel himself has in chapter 7. And this actually starts a series of Daniel's dreams. So before we had Daniel as the interpreter of dreams, but now this next little part, we have Daniel has his own towards, for the rest of the story. So this is, this, is, this is what the book's doing and where we're up to, okay? Um, and if you look at verse 1, verse 1 of our, of our, uh, of our chapter 7, we see... Daniel's actually been dreaming the whole way through, the whole way through the book. It's not just that you know, he was interpreting other people's, but actually now this chapter 7 is something that this happened actually during the reign of these other kings earlier in his life. This is a, a jumping back in time. The chronologically, this is, it hasn't all been in order as you go through the whole book. And he was, appropriately for a dream, lying in bed. Verses 1 to 8. And we get four beasts, a lion with eagle's wings, a bear with ribs in its mouth, a leopard with, with four wings and four heads, and a monster. It, it, it's not even given a name. Now, in some ways, things sort of happen in order in this dream, maybe a little bit like your dreams. Your dreams might be a bit wacky too. And, and you're sort of at this kingdom and this kingdom and this kingdom. But in other ways, the time is actually all over the shop in this. Uh, the kingdoms are successive, this one, then this one, then this one, but you actually get the fourth kingdom destroyed before the, the first three. The, the time sequence is a bit funny. Why is that? Well, it's actually because this little dream follows that same sort of, did you notice the pattern here? So two, three, four, four, five, six with matchings. This is the same as this actual poem itself. The poem itself follows that pattern. It's not chronological. It's a poem. It's designed to help you to see what is the most important thing. So I'll throw it up here. Where are we? We've got the appearing of beasts in verse 1 and 2 and the appearing of a human in 13, 14. And those two sort of match. It's their appearings. Then you've got the first three beasts and the fate of the first three beasts at the next bits and at the end. Then you've got the fourth beast appearing, fourth beast being destroyed, the small horn boasting, verse 8, and the small horn boasts again after that. And then in the middle... The, the turning point, the thing that's going to tell you how did, the, how did we go from the first half into the second half, what changed everything, and that is that scene in the throne room, that figure, the Ancient of Days, right in the middle. So in this kind of poem, you want to look for two things, right? Where does it begin? Where does it end? What's the difference between the first and the second half, and what turned it around? What's so powerful that it made the difference between the first and the second. We're just going to run quickly through it. Part A, the beasts come out of the sea, the four winds from the four corners of the earth are present, which if you were a Babylonian would send your mind back to the creation stories that you grew up with, your mum and dad telling you when the gods were fighting over who was going to be the king of the gods. And then we get to the first beast, this lion with wings, power, lion, and freedom to go wherever it wants. Think about if you're in an ancient world, they don't have planes, chariots are pretty expensive, and yet someone with the wings of an eagle could go wherever they want. The power of that in that world. And yet, its wings get clipped. This beast is, is, is no longer allowed the freedom of the air, falls to the ground, and yet then there is this weird mercy moment where it's picked up off the ground and lifted up to stand like a human, and this beast, this beastly figure, is re-given 
a human mind. Its sanity is given back to it. Now, for those of you who've been here, or even if you haven't been here before and you just know Daniel, uh, any guesses as to who this reminds you of? Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, that, that, that period of time where he got uh, sort of cast out into the wilderness and was eating grass like an ox and his hands, uh, fingernails were getting long, his hair went scraggy. But it's actually, notice that this is actually a shift in Nebuchadnezzar's narrative. See, the earlier story was about him being human, glorious and proud and then being brought low and made like a beast and then later given his sanity back. Whereas this story tells a different, this, this dream tells a different story about Nebuchadnezzar. It actually says he was a beast all along. Oh, sure, he looked human. Yeah, he looked great. Head of, com- head of a company, head of the company, head of the world. Had it together. Life was tops. But he was, according to this story, he actually was a beast then. And it was only when he was humbled by the God of heaven that his sanity was restored. While he was elevating himself above God, that was the beastliness. That was the insanity. Second beast. Second beast is a bear. This brutal beast feasting on the people of the world. It's, it's, this is pretty grim. This is yuck. You wouldn't want to draw a picture of this. In fact, have you, does anyone else have a kid's Bible like my wife like that just like basically gave you nightmares with this sort of stuff in it? Yeah, yeah. Like This is, this is crazy. Um, feasting on the people of the world, the second one. The third beast, this leopard, four heads and four wings, authority. Authority over the whole place, fly wherever it wants and have authority in all four corners of the earth. And yet this fourth beast, when it appears, it's the one that's frightening. (laughs) It's another level to the others, as if natural teeth weren't scary enough. It's got iron teeth. This is the wolverine of the Daniel 7 beast world. It's got adamantium infusedness into its bone structure. It is a different thing and a different level of fear and a different type of destruction in the way it thrashes around. If you read the text, you'll start to sort of get a feel. It's like a bull in a china shop in terms of the destruction it causes, but not like a bull in the china shop because it's, it's intentional about causing the destruction. And then, out of that kingdom, out of that beast, the sophisticated one, not the, not the, not the, the thrashing destructor, the small horn, the one who's got eyes and can see, he's got some perceptivity. The one who's got a mouth and can speak. The one who can make great boasts. The one who twists things. The subtle one. Something that's even more disturbing for how sort of more human that it is, in a way. The most destructive beast, total power, but its mouthpiece boasting in its power over everything else. Then we get to the center. This is the thing that changes everything. The center of the vision is the throne room. We have seen images of kingdoms, of kings, and, and even hints in the back of our heads of the gods of those kingdoms, as, as the sort of the way that Daniel introduced it would have, would have revoked that for the, for the ancient readers. And here then, a throne room above them all. The, the, the temporary kingdoms of the world, they go up and down, and here the ancient of days. Do you hear how in the title is clearly designed to make you think? He is above all of these different bits of politics that go around. Above the shifting sands of time, Clearly the God of Israel who has demonstrated himself throughout the book to be above gods and kings alike. That's pretty cool. Like he's got a throne of fire. He, his throne's got wheels. Like this is awesome. Uh, in particular, reminding us of, of Ezekiel's vision uh, of God actually leaving his temple when he was judging his people on a throne with wheels, on this flaming chariot. And this one here, 
is majestic. Terrifying, I would imagine. But in a different way to the beasts. Both terrifying, but different. You said there's purity, white like wool, lightning. Rather than mindless destruction, the picture of power here is pure, good. Now, I just want to jump out of the, the, the flow of it just to make one little point. Um, I, I don't know about you, but there are days when my prayers are kind of not half-hearted like I don't care about them, but they're a little bit matey. They're a little bit like I'm talking to um, maybe my dad, who I respect, but, you know, like he's fallible, and so the way that I respect him is the way you respect someone fallible. What do you do on days like that? How do you get yourself to talk to God with the respect that's appropriate? How do you get yourself from feeling like, ah, well, you know, just an Aussie guy talking to an Aussie guy on the, on the, you know, the pub counter or whatever? How do, how do we shift this vision here? Grab hold of this. Realize that as we pray, we are in the throne room with this being. That he is huge. He is utterly terrifying. That he is above anything that you're scared of in this life and yet pure at the same time. This is the one you serve and he's the one you're addressing. I, um, uh, there's a classic story of a, of a preacher who was preached on self-control and then had a young man come up to him afterwards and said, look, nice sermon on self-control, but I've got a girlfriend. <laughs> self-control is not possible. H- how do you do it? It's not, you can't have self-control. And the preacher said, oh, self-control is totally possible. Absolutely. How? Well, imagine that her, husband, that her dad is an MMA fighter and that he's in the room and you won't touch her. You won't go near her. You'll be a very different man because of the presence of the person that you're in. And this is the vision that God gives us of who he truly is so that when we're praying to him, we're talking to him, uh, we're not sloppy and, and, and slovenly because we're to- we, he's there. We're in his presence. He is he is the one who's in the room. And it both can bring us joy because of his purity and yet put our back up straight or get us down on our knees because of who we're talking to. He's holding court in this scene and he opens the books, the books of judgment. Now, we're going to go back down the line here to the, to the dashes, D-dash. The small horn boasts again. The small horn makes its claims to greatness, which now, in the light of the Ancient of Days holding court, looks like a very silly and dangerous choice of this little horn. And then the fourth beast, as if to prove that it was a bad idea, the fourth beast is destroyed in the next section. And then the, the first three beasts, their dominion is removed, though they are allowed to live for a time. And then finally... There is an appearing of something different, a second appearing. Instead of something bestial, this appearing is something human. This time a son of man appears. Now now you might in your head, who here was straight away going to the Gospels, Jesus saying the son of man this, the son of man that, talking about himself. These, Daniel wasn't thinking that. And the, the, the people who were the returnees in, in Israel who were reading the book of Daniel before Jesus came, they weren't thinking that. What, what, what did that mean to them? See, see the, the idea of a son of man, if you're a son of man, then you're like a man because you come from a man. It just means you're human. So, so, so this is a, a, the, the whole point here is not sort of this title of this amazing person. It's that it is a person. That's the thing. 
Now we don't have a beast who is walking up to the throne of God, who is calling themselves God. Now there is a human. And instead of destruction, a king who is humane. And the people... Because well, what's, what's the, the, the significance of this? What we see there is the people participate in this kingdom. The holy ones are there. They possess it. Instead of the, the people hurting for the ruler, the people are blessed because the kingship is truly humane. And thus ends the vision. It all accesses around the Ancient of Days being above it all. And because that's true, one day there will be a truly human Now, what did this mean to Daniel? I mean, Daniel's, Daniel's struggling to, to deal with this. He needs interpretation. He's asked, he asks twice. He gets two different explanations of this. And the beasts were originally described as, as kings. Each beast is a king. But now the fourth beast, each horn on its head is a king. Fluidity of dreams, right? You know, dreams just go a bit crazy. But, but it's, it's going to be hard for God's people in the future because this final empire, it's not just a king, it's a kingdom. And you get king after 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 king. And it's a destructive beast. So there's no wonder Daniel's freaking out about this dream because it's not, a good, it's not a good dream. You're like, oh, ancient of days on the throne. It's going to be all right in the end. It's a long time before the end. I got ten. I got, I got king, king, king. Then ten kings. Destructiveness. And then this little, this little jerk guy who comes up and he's arrogant and whatever else. It's going to be hard for God's people in the future, according to this dream. Now it is interesting though, because the ancient of days is all still above it. Did you notice that as we've gone through what's been happening to the beast, they haven't been seizing power for themselves. It's all passive. You notice that they were given it. And then the wings were taken away. They didn't seize power for themselves. There's one above all of this. They're not the author of their own authority, despite the boasts of the little horn. And yet Daniel, man, Daniel, he's, he's literally lying down, writhing in his guts. This is hero Daniel. Remember how Daniel seemed so superhuman throughout these times and standing up to death and all of this sort of stuff. And we're like, oh, we're not going to be like Daniel. We're not going to be like Daniel. He's sort of Jesus like. And now he is on the floor because he's looking at the future of his people, not even just his, his people. And he is disturbed because he knows that they are going to hurt. He's not sitting there. God's going to be on the throne forever. See if I can get to the right verse. Yeah, here it is. Terrified by my thoughts. My face pale with fear. Sometimes I feel like our society tries to build up a fake calm. Do you, do you ever notice that you're not supposed to be too alarmed by anything? I mean, not everyone's like that. Some people go the opposite extreme, full alarmist. But, but I'm terrible at this. My wife's like, Pete, this really sucks. This thing is not okay. This does not honour God. This does not help people. And she gets real angry. And, I, and I'm like, oh, yeah, but you know. God's on the throne, and I'm wrong. I'm really wrong. I'm sorry, honey. This hurts. Some things just do hurt. Some things are just so wrong. And Daniel has seen the prospect of these people who are going to hurt his people, the exile going on and on and on. And he cares. He's affected by it. The fate of God's people matters to him. He is not calmly indifferent. He hears about the fourth beat's destructive nature, and he wants to know what's going to happen there. He specifically asks. He hears about that. He's like, no, what's happening? Verse 21. And he's going to have superiority. It's going to persecute your people. 
Now, there's probably a few ways that this came true. It certainly would have come true pretty much in any decade between when Daniel has this dream and all the, all the way even right up through to the Roman persecutions under Nero and all the emperors after that until the, the, the empire changed its nature. Uh, there was, there was uh, wars between Rome and Jerusalem where um, Roman generals came to, and destroyed the whole city and set up abominations in the temple. And we're going to talk about the, the history side of that stuff in the, the next few weeks. It'll be a fun history lesson. But it's going to be really, really hard. And Daniel's hurting because of it. So what do we do? This is the funny thing. We're left at the end of a, it's a series that's like, uh, you know, living in hope. And then I end, end the verse and the guy who's like our main character is on his, on his back just in, in, in a mess. What do we do with it? Well, I want to I think about that moment. That moment when there was a son of man, a human being who approached the ancient of days. And this moment when God here, this angel, interprets it and predicts that this is going to happen. See, scholars are kind of puzzled about this. They're puzzled about lots of things in Daniel. But about this particularly. See, when does this refer to? Right? So when is, when is this Son of Man going to come and approach the Ancient of Days? What, is it, what, 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 what does it mean? What is it about? What's happening? Is this when Jesus comes back at the end of the world? Well, that's a bit difficult because Jesus, the way Jesus spoke, he expected it to happen in his lifetime. This is just one of many texts where you get to see it. Oh, sorry. Uh, the Matthew one. Where's the Matthew one? Goodness gracious. Where are we? Right at the end. There we go. The Matthew one. This is when Jesus is, is in his trial and the high priest says to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, you've said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand. How more, Daniel 7, could you get, right? And coming on the clouds of heaven. When? Well, in the future is what it says there. Uh, from now on is a much more literal translation. From now on, I'm sorry, I assumed that that was going to be the, I don't know why, I, oh, sorry about it, I mixed, getting mixed up with the translation up there. From now on, and there's a num this is not just one verse, there's a number of them. This was just meant to be the example of it. And so the question is, and this is scholars puzzle over this, was Jesus wrong? When did he come in the clouds, the Son of Man come? Because, because Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's been oh, 2,000 years. What happened? Why didn't, he come, why didn't he come back within the lifetime of his followers? Well, we're going to go to Hebrews, start of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. If I can get back there. Here we go. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his kind. This must be the New Living Translation, I reckon. Somehow I got the versions wrong. My apologies. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honour at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And this shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. You see, the way that Hebrews understands this is that when Jesus came with the clouds of heaven was not 
something that's going to happen in the future, although that will happen in the future, but, but, but what he was really referring to was in his death and resurrection and ascension when he approached God. In his death, he, he submitted himself to God, saying, the ancient of days, you are king, I will obey you. I won't put myself above you. And in the resurrection, God vindicates that, as what, which is what the, the ancient of days does in Daniel 7, allows him, judges him worthy to come into the throne room. And so he does as he invites him to sit down at his right hand with all rule and authority above everything. See, this has already happened. He's already come with the clouds of heaven. There is a true human being who is king of this world. I remember, I remember when I heard the phrase, I was one of my mates and he was a cool guy and um, he was like into like uh, graffiti art and he was like a Christian guy and he, used, he goes into detention centres and he can do this awesome, incredible graffiti art and does it all to the glory of God. It's fantastic. And he used this phrase and uh, it just really grabbed me. Um, I always just thought it sounded so cool and I never used it for a long time because you know when someone cool uses something, you can't use it for a while. Until, yeah. Anyway, um, and, and he just said, oh, you know, you, you say this and this, is, you make it sound like I'm some incredible human being. And I just, oh, incredible human being. Oh, yeah, that's such a cool phrase. It just brings to mind the, the awesomeness of people. Because people are great. Like human beings at their best. Some of the things that people do and the way they are and the way they love. And an incredible human being is an incredible thing. And I just love that phrase. See, the thing is, Jesus, the one who was in charge of this world, is not beastly at all. He is an incredible human being. But in a way, but, but because we don't know what true human being looks like, levels again beyond what that phrase could, could, could bring up in our minds. This is what the Son of Man is, the truest human being, a real human being, an actual human being, one like the likes of which we've never seen. He, he died for others. He blessed, he loved, he, ra- he was raised, vindicating his purity. He never cheated anyone. He only ever acted with justice. And so the joyful thing for Christians is that sanity will prevail because he is already enthroned. Mercy will be dispensed. The one who is king, the one who you pray to is good, sitting at the right hand of the ancient of days. Now, why does this matter? This matters because if you don't believe this, you will not put your trust in God and you will not put your trust in Jesus. If you don't believe he's that good, you will not. You'll sin. Because sin's appealing, right? It seems good. It offers good things, so it seems. But if we don't believe God is better, if we don't believe Jesus is truly better in all of the, not just the sort of, oh, kind of like, you know, morally perfect sort of uh, abstract kind of ways, but in the real human, warm, true ways that actually was only ever really the image of God himself, if we don't believe that he is that, we, we, we will sin. Because sin will be more appealing and will feel more real and feel more human and feel more connected to your deep heart, even though it's not. And when the persecution comes, you'll fold because he's, he's sort of great and nice and powerful but distant and really not that real and earthy and human. And he's not worth it, not worth suffering through the persecution for. Keep that picture of a human, the son of man in the throne room, pure and white, this incredible human being. Because Jesus will never abuse his power. He will be a good king, not a beastly one. Fix that thought in your head. But there is one more point of application. We're finishing up soon. 
the holy ones in this, in this image will be persecuted. You see, the ascended vindicated Jesus as he reveals the future to his apostle John in Revelation. He actually casts this, this vision even forward. This vision of the holy ones being persecuted is, is, still a, is still a future thing. It happened back then. It happened in, in, in Rome under Nero. But, but it's also going to happen again, he says, cast it forward because the sun has not yet returned. Despite the presence of the Son of Man on the, and the Ancient of Days on the throne, the beast will continue at its attempts of destruction. It's just part of the nature of this age. This is Revelation 6. They shouted to the Lord and said, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? These are the people who have been killed in martyrdom. It's a part of the nature of this age until Jesus comes back. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for faith, for ourselves, and for people who are in far more direct danger for their faith, that they'll hold on to Jesus, because this is real. It is likely that you will, and if not you, then your kids will have to suffer for refusing to worship another God, for, not, for bowing down to something else that's set up in his place. It's going to be tough for Solomon. It's going to be tough for Billy. For Avi, for I am. Uh, we'll need to train them in these passages that though beastly authorities may come to power, that the, the, the true one, the true authority over them all, despite the fact that this world has got the beasts in it, that he is good and he can be trusted. We've got to expect it to be hard. Be prepared. It won't be hard all the time, but some t- some, there will come a point, most likely. And we can't pretend that it will never be like this because it hasn't been for us too bad so far and then be freaked out when it happens and not be able to handle it. We face the reality now, like, like Daniel. It wasn't happening yet, but he, he, he didn't just sort of say, oh, I'll deal with that when it comes. No, he faced that reality, felt the realness of it then so that you're prepared later. Um, there's a guy named David Goggins. Uh, he's a controversial former ex-Navy SEAL, a uh, guy of hyper-discipline. One of those guys who like, gets up in the morning and his rule for the day is that every day we've got to do something that sucks, <laughs> something that hurts, something that's hard, something that's terrible, just so I build my discipline. Right, this is the kind of human being that he is. Now, I'm not saying don't, 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 don't you know, build your life around David Goggins, but he's, he has this phrase which is good. He says, you've got to embrace the suck. Embrace the suckiness. Get used to it. Think about it as something you can handle when you're empowered by God's Holy Spirit. Um, In Acts, uh, let me see, I think it's back this way. Acts, where are we? I'll let my brothers up the back do it. Get, get, get Get us to Acts chapter 5, verse 41, please, guys. In Acts 5, 41, um, the the apostles uh, left the, the council in Jerusalem having been chastised, having been threatened, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. This attitude will help them. See, this matters that we expect this because if we don't come to expect this, then we won't be prepared mentally. We won't be prepared spiritually. And if we don't believe that Jesus is as good as he says he is, a truly king, a truly human king, truly humane king, no abuse and destruction in him, then we won't hold on because we won't think he's worth it. This is the hope that we hold on to. One day sanity will reign. The boss won't be horrible. Your boss will be an amazing and incredible human being. Let's praise God for that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this 
crazy big vision of you on the throne, hair white like lightning and pure wool. So terrifying and yet good. So pure and life-giving and yet terrifying to evil. And thank you for the truly human king who sits at your right hand, who makes it safe for other humans who put their trust in him to be there with you. Father, please don't let us be tempted to think of you as other than you are so that our faith will not be tempted to grow weak and wan. Father, we pray this for us. Pray this especially today for Solomon, that we might be found in you to be those holy ones who, yes, though we cry out how long and it hurts our guts as we see our brothers and sisters uh, being hurt, but who yet know that we will be under the good king on the last day and rejoice with him and rejoice at having been counted worthy at suffering for his name. For we ask it in his name, for his glory. Amen.